Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> oh man, don't you love kids? It's so fun to just watch that and see the different personalities and see the different controls that some of them have as one of them actually gets it in his mouth and I loved watching that kid and then he's like, no, I can't, I can't do it. And it, I, I kind of feel like it's demented on the adult part to just, here, here's a marshmallow, wait for an undetermined amount of time and don't touch it, don't eat it, don't, don't do anything with it. And have you ever felt like you're in that spot before? where something is dangling in front of you that you want so bad, and you're just told, no, you can't have it. And suddenly, for as you get to become adults, we don't, we're not talking about marshmallows, but we're talking about other things. 
We're talking about things that our body desires, things that our, our self, our, our, our pride, our ego, whatever it is, things that we as people desire that God's word actually tells us no, that God's word says don't, don't touch it. I mean, you look at the first sin, and it came as a result of God telling Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you get Satan coming in saying, oh, but did God really mean that? Did God really mean for you not to, like, even touch it? Oh, well, no, we can touch it. We just can't eat it. And then Satan ends up saying, well, it's just because God is trying to withhold something good from you. And so the thing is, I've heard it said before, whoever has said sin is not fun hasn't really tried it. And it's like you think about that, and it almost seems blasphemous and wrong to say. But really, if it wasn't, if there was not some sense of satisfaction and, I don't want to say enjoyment, but some sense of relief or whatever you want to say, whatever word you want to fill in right there, why would we be tempted with it? I mean, look at donuts. My word, so good. No nutritional value in them at all. It's like, I know that eating this is going to just destroy my insides, but I'm going to get three of them, and I'm filling them all with angel cream filling, and by two, I'm going to regret it, but I bought three, so we're going all the way. And I mean, that's the way it is with sin, where we're like, oh man, I know this is going to ruin my life, but uh, there's something about it that is just pulling me in, but what we don't realize, or actually a lot of times we do realize even, what we do not follow through with and apparently believe is though sin might seem fun for a moment, it ends in death. What is pleasurable, what is desirable for a moment always leads to death. You see, there's this battle that is constantly going on in our minds, and the tactic of the enemy is really to try and get us to not trust God, to not even really worship God. I mean, there's Satan, and Satan desires to be worshipped, but also I believe that Satan really just desires for God not to get any worship. I mean, Satan would love for everybody to just glorify him and live for him and worship him. But even there, he just says, actually, more than anything, I mean, I just don't want God getting the credit. If I can turn people away from God to not worship him, to not, not give him glory, that's what I want. And so we see that, that Satan is going to tempt us and try and turn us away from God. But honestly, it's not even Satan. It's ourselves. It's our own sin nature. It's our own selfish desires. It's our, our own being humans, fallen creatures that we are. James, he says it this way in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But instead, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Probably 90% of the time in my life, my biggest enemy is right here. It's me. It's not Satan. Satan's not omnipresent. Satan's not all over the place. He's got his minions and they're evil and they're trying to set up schemes and everything like that. But according to James, I'm tempted when it's my own 
evil, selfish desires. And so what Jesus is teaching us as we go through this model prayer is that we need to not rely on ourselves. Because as Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above anything else. And so we don't rely on ourselves, but instead we rely on God. We trust in Him. And so we're wrapping up our series on the Lord's Prayer or the model's prayer, model prayer. And we're going to be in the section where Jesus says that we pray to not be led into temptation. And so if you'll rise as we read Matthew chapter 6, we're going to again read the entire Lord's Prayer, four verses, 9 through 13. And I'm just going to ask if this time you will join me in reading the Lord's Prayer. If we can read this together, it's read for you to read it. So pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Father God, we come before you and may we just have this be our heart's prayer that God, we we live for you, we seek you out and God, we rely on you in everything. So often, God, we try and make it about ourselves. And so I just pray that as we, we see in this message today, God, will you speak to us? Will you just let us see how we can rely on you and how we can just live holy lives for you in everything? And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. And so what, what we're going to look at today is really what God's Word tells us, biblical steps to resisting temptation. And first off, some of, we have a role to play. So some of these are going to be dependent on us, but I want to overarch all of it in that we need to be dependent on God for the strength through it all. But we're going to go through three practical biblical steps on how we can resist temptation. Because again, Ephesians tells us that we're in a battle. That there is an enemy out there that's going to try and trip us up, that's going to, again, try and get us to pull away from God, to not worship God, that Satan is going to try and cause us to stumble. And so we need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared to resist temptation. So biblical steps for resisting temptation. The first one, that video, it shows temptation, but really that group removed one of the big things that God tells us to do. They didn't have the ability to do this one. And that is run away. Step number one for resisting temptation, Run like crazy, get out of dodge, flee from it, is the terminology that the Bible tells us. To get completely away, not to dance with it, not to sit there and toy with it like so many of those kids were doing. Where it's like, oh, I'm just, like, I love the one kid too, he's like looking over here and he's just gonna like feel the marshmallow. And it's like, we do that so often with sin. It's like, well, I'm not looking at it, but I'm, I'm gonna feel over there. Or they'd start smelling it. Notice they would get closer and closer the longer it went, that they're dancing with it. How, how close to eating the marshmallow can I get without really eating the marshmallow? Maybe if I just nibble a little edge off of it. I didn't really eat the marshmallow. We do that with sin. We dance with it. Very common statement here. How far is too far? Ever been asked that by your kids? Hey, how, how far is too far? 
We ask that. It's like, how close to the line of sin can I get without really sinning? How many drinks is too many drinks before it's a sin? How far with my partner is too far before we actually cross the line and actually sin? How big of a lie is actually a lie before it's actually a sin? We're seeing how close to sin can I dance before I actually cross the line? And that is the wrong question to ask. Instead, the right question, according to God, is flee from it and how close to holiness can you get? How much like Jesus can you live this life? Not how close to the world can you be and still claim to be a Christian, but instead, here's the line, run as far away as possible. Don't dance with it. Don't toy with it. Don't get close to it. Get out of Dodge. Flee from it. We're told this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What he's talking about right before that, he's talking about the love of money and the desire to get rich. Because look at so many people that did not flee the love of money. And then they got money at the cost of everything else. They got what they wanted, but they lost their family. They lost all their friends. I was listening to a sermon the other day, and uh, I do not know the guy's name, but he has the greatest batting average in the history of Major League Baseball. At one time, he had 90 Major League Baseball records because he devoted himself to it. He gave everything he had. At his death, his net worth was in the millions of dollars. I mean, he had, by all standards, arrived but he had three people at his funeral. That's it. Three people. Not even enough people to carry him out of the church. His last words audibly spoken were, I wish I had more friends because I got everything I thought I desired. I wanted to get rich. I wanted the fame. I gave everything up for it. And now what do I have to show for it? I got fame. Three people showed up for my funeral. I got money, but that's not going with me. And so God's word tells us, flee from the desire to get rich. Flee from the love of money. Get away from it. Instead, again, run away from the line of sin and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You know what those are? The fruits of the Spirit. Pursue what it is to be more like God, not more like the world. Flee from that. Paul says in 2 Timothy, a second letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, flee the youthful passions of your flesh and pursue, again, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says, just run away. Get away from it entirely. Flee from it. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you realize, man, I'm kind of worshiping this a little more than I'm worshiping God. I'm, I'm making this a priority more than anything else. That's what idolatry is, putting anything above God. I'm worshiping it more than God. Paul says, flee from it. Run away. Again, so often it's like, well, I'll just manage it a little better. I'll just, you know, kind of tone it down. And it's like, don't even do that. Don't dance with it. Flee from it. 
Then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee from that, because it's going to cost you your life. Flee from sin, because it's always, 100% of the time, going to lead to death. Oh, but we got away with it. I don't think so. We're going to talk about that in a little bit in Proverbs, where it says you don't realize it's costing you your life. You think you got away with it? You didn't. We're fleeing from sexual immorality. I mean, I think that's a huge one. I heard stats this week that two-thirds of all teenagers are looking at pornography. Three-fourths of all men are looking at pornography in the church, not in the world, in the church, because we are doing a horrible job of fleeing from sexual immorality. And so many people would be like, oh, yeah, and like I've heard it said, I have not experienced this, but people have gone up to pastors and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with porn right now. Like they're open enough to go and ask for help. And the pastor was like, well, how are you looking at it? And they pull out their phone right there in their pocket. Well, my phone, I mean, it's like magazines galore. I can find anything I want on there. And it's like, so you're saying that the very thing that is causing you to destroy your marriage is the very thing you carry in your pocket? You're not fleeing. You're not running from it. I mean, like, if you really saw what sin did to your life and that was a struggle that you carried and we really understood it, you would pull that phone out and chuck it against the wall and go buy a dumb phone or a rotary phone or not even have a phone. Go carry your pigeon. Because you get serious about fleeing from sexual immorality. You get serious about fleeing from idolatry. You get serious about fleeing from your youthful passions and from the desire to love money and get rich. We have a great example in the Old Testament of fleeing from sexual immorality. Joseph, he was born to Jacob, to Israel, and he was born the, the second to the youngest. He was the favorite son. He's given the coat of many colors. He's hated by his brothers, and so he goes out to check on them. They get mad. They throw him in a well. They tell their father he died when they really sold him off to slavery. So he goes into Egypt, and then as he's in Egypt, he gets bought by this man named Potiphar, pretty much second in command. He's like the leader of the army. And so he's there serving Potiphar, and Potiphar ends up putting him in charge of pretty much everything. Genesis 39 says this. It says, he, being Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Interesting. Next line. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Thank you. Divine inspiration. Then it says, after a time, his master's wife, now we understand why we're told it, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? No, sin against God. 
How can I do this? How can I sin against God? I'm not going to do that. I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm not even going to toy with it. I'm getting away from there. But she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her. He lied beside her, or nor he did not. He would not listen to her or lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she had seen that he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, he got out of there. Now, I almost would go so far to say he didn't flee soon enough. I mean, like, I don't know, bold statement for me who's not in that situation, go to jail over that. Like, just be like, hey, can, can you send me back to prison? Because this is going to destroy my life. But God had it all in a plan, but we see ultimately what he did. When she reaches out and grabs him, he's not like, nobody's looking. All right, let's go. But he says, no. How can I sin against my God? Not even my master. It's not him that I'm worried about offending. It is my holy and beloved God. That is who I'm not going to sin against. You see, Proverbs sadly talks about what too many people do today. In Proverbs chapter 7, the man is looking out, Solomon. He says, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple I have perceived among the youths a young man, he has no sense. He passes along the street corner, street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night in darkness. He's, he's seeing, he's looking through, and he's watching this man that walks by the same road, knowing who's down the road, a seductress, adulterous woman. And this guy's tempting it. He's like, well, I'll just walk down this road. Okay, maybe now I'll go down that road. Okay, maybe I'll look in the house. Maybe he keeps toying with sin a little more and more. And then he says, behold, the woman meets him. She's dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She's now in the street. Now she's in the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him. She kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Man, she's talking his language, like, oh, I'm something special. I came for you. She said, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us make love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Why? Because my husband, he's gone. He left. He's not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. He will not be home until full moon. Also known as, we're going to get away with this. We got this. He's gone. Nobody's going to know. It won't hurt anybody. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because sin leads to death. Notice the next line, verse 21. With, With much seductive speech, She persuades him. He didn't flee, but he kept getting closer and closer. And she grabbed him and then seduces him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. Here you go. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And someday he's going to wake up as his life is just destroyed. How did I get here? 
How did this happen? It happened one step at a time. By not fleeing, but by going a little bit closer. Nobody wakes up thinking, you know what, I'm just going to drink my life away, going to get drunk, throw everything away. <laughs> at least no sane person does. Nobody starts doing substances and thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just going I'm, to, I'm throwing it all away, I'm gonna, just going to start doing this, and it'll all be okay. They think they get away with it. Nobody starts affairs by thinking, you know what, let's end this. I mean, actually, sadly, people do. But a lot of times, we'll, we'll say within the church, among God's people, it's a majority of the time, it's like, we can get away with this. Nobody will know. I don't have to confess. We're not that kind of church where we open up with each other. We keep it all inside, and we just say, I'm good. How are you? And then we go on. I can get away with it. And what Solomon, what Paul, what God is telling us is it is going to cost you your life. Don't walk towards it. It's not how far can we get before we cross the line, but it's how close to holiness can we live that's what we're called to do. Peter tells us that. Be holy as God is holy. So the first thing that we got to get serious about doing is fleeing from temptation and taking that command seriously. But I'll be honest, sometimes you can't flee. So, sometimes you are stuck and you can't flee. Joseph, probably a good example of that. You know, I mean, he, he couldn't flee. He was, that was his job. That was, it wasn't even his job. He was a slave. He was forced to do that. He could not get away. So what do we do when we just literally cannot get away? You fight. You fight for your life. You fight like you realize that Proverbs chapter 7, verse 23 is true, that it will cost you your life, and you keep on fighting. You do not give up. You see sin for what it really is, and then you fight. So, for example, when you go fishing, how do you catch a fish? For bass, for example. Throw something really shiny in the water. They see it. It sparkles like, ooh, pretty. They come, and they bite it. They think it's going to be good for them, but then next thing they know, they are hooked, and they are stuck. How does a bass get away, though? Heather and I went fishing. She's technically caught the largest fish in our relationship. She's a better fisherwoman than I am a fisherman. It got away, though. You know how it got away? It fought. It didn't just lay over dead. Well, take me in. I'm captured. But it fought for its life. That's what we do. We see sin as that shiny thing that if we cannot fight it because maybe we're already hooked. Maybe you've already, like, I've gone too far. What do I do? You fight. You don't throw in the towel, but you fight and you fight and you keep on fighting, realizing, number one, that it's up here that the battle begins, that the battle starts in your head, because that's what James tells us. James chapter 1, we read verse 14. He said, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so you fight, and you fight, and you keep fighting. Till when? Till God calls you home. Or until you've won the battle, and you're no longer desiring that. But you fight, and you never give in. 
We have to win the battle of our minds first. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take captive our thoughts. We don't let our thoughts control us. We control our thoughts. So often we just let our minds run. Don't do that. Control our thoughts because it's in that running of the minds that you go down some deep, dark holes. And it's like, how did I get here? Because we're not controlling our thoughts. We're not taking our thoughts captive. I mean, I struggled with that this week, honestly. Had like the worst attitude I almost ever remember. Like rage was inside of me that scared me. And it was like, how am I getting here? And then it was like, I'm not controlling my thoughts. I'm just letting things run. And then I'm letting them build and build, and I'm, I'm, it's like kindling to the fire. You're just feeding it one after another, and it's growing, and then it's like out of control, and it's like, how did I get here? Because you did not keep it under control. We control our thoughts. We don't let our thoughts control us. What you dwell on is what you're going to feed. And the more you feed something, the bigger it's going to grow. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and repetition and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he says, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think of these things. For, for you English scholars out there, that last sentence or that last phrase, think about these things. It's an imperative sentence. It's a command. We're being told to control our thoughts. It's, it's as if Paul is saying, you have the ability to do this. Are you going to control them? Think about whatever is pure, whatever is true, honorable, just, lovely, commendable. Let these things be what you dwell on, because what you dwell on is what you're going to feed, and what you feed is what you're going to grow. And so you grow the things that are of God. There's constantly that battle of the mind going on, and we need, we're called to feed positivity. We're, fe we're called to feed the things that are of God, not the things that are of, world, of the world. I mean, to be honest, the music that a lot of people listen to feeds a lot of our souls. I mean, there's some crazy things out there about what music does. You're in a bad mood, man, kick on some praise and worship music. It helps. But at the same time, there is a lot of secular music that is tearing down the minds of people because, oh, I don't listen to it for the words, just for the beat. And that was always my excuse until I caught myself singing the words with it. And it's like, man, it's like entering into my mind subconsciously. So we control the battle of the mind. And then number three, what we do is we realize our weaknesses. We realize that we're not perfect, we're not strong, we're not really able on our own, but we realize our weaknesses. Each person has a different weakness. Each person has different vices. Some things are going to tempt certain people one way, whereas it will have no effect on other people. We all sin differently, but we all sin. 
Everybody's a sinner, but your sin's not necessarily the same sins that I commit or struggle with. But we're all deserving of death because we all are sinners. But we need to know what our weaknesses are. Because that's part of it. I mean, look at sports teams. They find out, all right, this is where we're weak. You know, hey, like basketball, we got a team of five foot five guys. We're not going to be able to dunk on any six foot three dudes. We're probably not going to dominate the paint. We know that's our weakness, but we also know we're going to have to focus on that. We're going to have to give a little extra attention to where our weakness is so that we can watch our back, so that we're not going to get just lamb blasted by what our weakness is. I mean, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And so you find out what your weaknesses are. And the thing is, Satan, even though he doesn't always tempt us, even though it's our own selfish desires, we are told that he puts out snares. He puts out those traps. He is trying to trap us and entice us. Again, 2 Timothy 2, verse 26 this time. It says, they came to their senses and they escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Satan is setting these snares. It says right there that he sets up snares to try and trap people. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded. You need to be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. I mean, he's ready. So he's going to find your weakness. Oh, your weakness is in isolation? Good. Isolate yourself. Because that's where you're weak, and that's where I'm going to be able. And actually, I don't have to because you're going to do it all yourself. That's where you're going to fall short. If you know what your weakness is, you know how to avoid it. It helps. I mean, my weakness, a big one, is being exhausted. Lack of sleep, running on fumes. That's where I start losing the battle of my mind. And so for me, I know that is a weakness. And so for me, it's like important. I go to bed and I get sleep. And I know my weakness whenever it's starting to like, man, I've ran so many nights on only a couple hours of sleep, I can feel it coming. And it's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get this under control. Know what your weaknesses are. And I believe, honestly, one of the biggest weaknesses that we have that everybody wants to overlook is the weakness of isolation. You know how predators go about taking on a big old herd of gazelles? They try and get one off by itself. They know they can't take on the whole herd. So if they can isolate one, then they know that one is so vulnerable on its own. And yet, as Christians, we think, I don't need the church. I don't need to open up to other people. I don't need accountability and community and brother and sisterhood. I don't need any of that stuff, which is what Satan and your own self is trying to say, yeah, right, you're okay on your own. You can be fine not opening up to anybody. And we see from the animal kingdom, it doesn't go well. And in our own lives, it does not go well. The Bible talks way more about being in community, about this being something more than Sunday mornings, but actually being a body, a family, a united front, that there should be no individual in the church, but that we are all the body. Individually members but together building the body. And so you should not be alone. James 5, 16 tells us this. It says, confess your sins to one another. Not just God, 
We do that, yes, definitely. But James even says, hey, open up to somebody else. Confess your sins so that they can pray for you because the prayer of a righteous man will bring about healing. It has great power and is in it, it's working. Solomon in this great experiment of life in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 gives very popular verses. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift them up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. I mean, we're probably all thinking literal, like, man, if I trip, oh no, somebody's going to be there to help me up. But what if we go spiritually? Where if you fall spiritually, if you give in, if you did not fight, if you did not flee, and you gave in to that temptation, and you're like, man, I'm all alone. I have nobody to turn to. I have nobody to help me through this. I am all alone. Solomon says, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken or quickly broken. So alone, you can be broken. It's going to happen. Alone, when you try and isolate, when you think, I got this, I don't need anybody's help, you can be broken. But together, you are so much stronger. And then there's that third part. A three-cord strand cannot be broken. See, our ultimate weakness is that we're humans, is that we cannot do it on our own, but that we need the grace of God, that we need the help of God in our lives. 2 Corinthians 12, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so the ultimate weakness that we have to realize is that we cannot do it on our own. We need help, but ultimately we need God. Notice even the wording of Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is saying we need God's help to get through this. We need God's help to deliver us from the evil one. We can't do it on our own. It's, it's, a, it's a posture of submission, of realizing this is where I'm weak. I can't do it, God. Without you, I'm going to fall. I need you. But there's one last thing I'm going to wrap up with this. That we also need to know God's grace. Because here's the thing. Who's perfect in this room? Who's lived a perfect life? I'm really disappointed, people. Thought we'd have one. No. Nobody is perfect. Who's going to be perfect after this message? Even though I have just so beautifully, eloquently, clarifyingly, never mind, uh, just pointed out three ways that you can resist temptation and we're all going to go home and perfectly live out the rest of our lives never sinning again, not going to happen. Because we're humans. We're going to fall short. And when we do, we walk 
in grace. We remember the grace that God gave us and continues to give us and will always give us when we are covered by his blood so that when we fall short, and it's going to happen, we don't beat ourselves up, we don't kick ourselves when we're down, but instead we pick ourselves up. We have somebody with us to help pick us up, to dust us off, to point us back to Jesus so that we can continue to live for him. Because you see, you are justified at salvation, meaning that the penalty of sin was removed from your life. But sanctification the process of being made holy, the process of removing the power of sin in our life, it's not a one-and-done deal. It is a lifelong process until ultimately we are glorified, where we are totally removed from the presence of sin altogether, and that is when we are in the presence of God. And so during the process of sanctification, of being made holy, of dying to sin daily and being raised to Christ daily, during that process, we remind ourselves that God has forgiven us and that God gives us grace. Because Paul knew about struggles. I mean, the guy that still wrote so much of the New Testament, he says, I do not know the good, or I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, I fight it, I flee it, I do everything, I still, I still fall. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being. I want to do what is right, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. All he can say is, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. That's who. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is who will save us. That is who has saved us so that we can walk in that grace. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then we're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we remind ourselves of. That when we fall short, even though we fight and fight and fight and we just fall short, we remind ourselves if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will remove us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Father God, we thank you for your grace. God, you are so good. You have forgiven us of everything. By, by canceling our debt, by nailing it to the tree, God, the penalty has been paid. And now we can walk in the newness of life. But God, we still have this fleshly body that falls short, that sins, that God just even defiantly, blatantly goes against your word at times. I thank you for your forgiveness. 
God, I pray for anybody that might be in this room that has not confessed their sins, has not repented of their, their life of death, God, that they're living against you. They have not received salvation found in you. God, give them the heart to do that work in them as only you can. And then, God, I pray for your people. God, I pray that we take your word serious, that we get serious about being holy, that we, we just fight the good fight of faith daily until you call us home. God, work in your people as you are. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. If you'll stand with me.